0: Then the longer we take, because we're taking a bloody long time to address it. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and the longer, the more of that bottleneck problem we're having. It's definitely
1: the more diversity that you lose, and that's when we have to think. You know, do we step in and try and help these populations get across this rapid change? Are there well, ways well, that we can help? There, to in a micro
0: sense, but in a macro sense, that doesn't help, does
2: yeah. it? 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded
3: history.
4: 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. show this July
3: was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The
5: rate is of great concern. Uh, what do you think that rate does Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a
2: renewable resource. (laughs)
3: in 165 years of history promoting the advancement of science in Victoria, audiences at the Royal Society of Victoria were treated to a live music and panel event in celebration of the 160th anniversary of Charles Darwin's hugely influential book On the Origin of Species. The event, called Gene Tree Project, Music on the Evolution of Species, was held on the 21st of November, 2019, and explored the ability of species to evolve and adapt to our rapidly changing climate. Musicians Elisa Goodrich, Adam Simmons, Gideon Brazil, Elliot Falvik, and Tamara Murphy from Gene Tree Project perform a mix of live jazz, improvisation, and contemporary classical with the original music inspired by evolutionary biology, and climate change science. The accompanying panel discussion involving Professor Andrew Pask, an evolutionary biologist from the University of Melbourne, and Dr Amy Kutsia, a threatened species biologist from Zoos Victoria, and Alyssa Goodrich, Gene Tree Project composer and musician, delves into themes of adaptation, extinction, and resilience, but most importantly, hope in the face of loss and action to achieve the seemingly impossible. I'm Renee Beale, your MC. Super excited to share this inspiring and richly informative event with you on this, The Climactic Podcast. Welcome to the Royal Society of Victoria. Tonight, we've got something very special in store for you. Um, Welcome to the Gene Tree Project Music on the Evolution of Species. This event is being held on the lands of Wurundjeri people and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to extend that respect to all indigenous people joining us this evening. The Wurundjeri people are this region's first scientists, patiently observing and sometimes gently shaping the ecosystem So they so effectively cared for for thousands of years. As a scientist, I'm humbled by the deep knowledge of the Wurundjeri people and other indigenous communities. And I feel incredibly grateful For their generosity in reaching out to educate and work with scientists in how we can best care for country together. Funny enough, when Alyssa and I talked about putting this event together, I actually didn't realise that we're pretty much on top of the 160th anniversary of Charles Darwin when he first published On the Origin of Species. That was not actually planned, but very fortuitous, where he detailed the amazing ability of living things to evolve through natural selection. Today human activities and the Earth's rapidly changing climate are demanding that species adapt and evolve at an unprecedented rate in order to survive a great ecological disruption. Tonight the Gene Tree Project sonically explore climate change science and retell the story of the peppered moth through a mix of live jazz, improvisation and contemporary classical. The original music draws upon aspects of evolutionary biology and species adaptation in response to changes in climate and to themes of adaptation, extinction and resilience.
6: and for us as the ensemble to be bringing what we're doing artistically into into a science context. Um, With that in mind, I won't talk much (laughs) about the science with so many experts in the room, Um, but I will introduce the pieces to you so that you've got little hooks um, for what you're listening to. Um, And I'm going to remember what we're playing the first few tunes. So the first set, if you like, I've chosen the tunes that kind of introduce the main emotional themes as well as the more narrative themes of what we've been working with with the Gene Tree Project and the second set will play more pieces that come inspired by the specific science and mathematics around um, evolutionary biology. We'll give you a, a small version of a piece called Moth Returns to Mountain Ash from a piece called passing through dance in the bottleneck, two other pieces after that, one called strong, one called fragile. So from that already I, I would assume for many of you, you you're, you're kind of getting the hint about the, the trajectory and theme that I took from uh, my 101 crash course <laughs> in evolutionary biology and genetics, um, story of the peppered moth, which I'll talk about later and also As an artist what fascinated me is how quite often or quite possibly it's the mutation or the damaged that becomes strong and survive Um, and artistically that's um, a lovely thing to, to, to work with.
0: bamboo flute from Japan, connected with the Zen Buddhist tradition. This is actually, the the standard length is 1.8, shaku is a um, measurement of length, kind of like a foot, hachi is 8, and it refers to 8 sun, so that's the 1.8 instrument, um, and that's literally the name of, the length is the name of it. So this is the 2.0,
2: 2 sun more. Which technically
0: would be the shaku, oh. but it generally just gets referred to as a uh, 2.0 shakuhachi so it's like it's the 2.0 1.8 oh. it's very Japanese it's just simply what it is very Zen oh.
6: It um, <laughs> drives my colleagues insane because it's a lot of dots on the page, um, but it's also introducing... Um, when I when I first was um, introducing myself and with others to this project, I said to the scientist involved, Dr Anna Sign, I need a narrative hook. I'm not a scientist. And so she provided me beautifully, instantly, with the story of the peppered moth. A, as a way of understanding how um, uh, species can at times adapt to quite significant climate change. So um, I am not going to give um, history science lessons <laughs> in this room, but um, the, the basic gist of it for those that may not be aware, so the peppered moth comes from the hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> industrial in industrial revolutionary England. Um, there's a, a moth that had a, a peppering on its white wings. Um, as the um, uh, woods it was living in became more and more polluted, um, it was able to adapt. And uh, this is not the scientific version, this is the artistic version of it. Um, the, uh, it became the black moth um, and the pepper moth faded out. When industrial England got its act together and cleaned up the woods, miraculously, this amazing moth with its genes was able to then reintroduce its original peppered moth, and the black moth died out. So, that's it in a nutshell. Um, very <laughs> nutshell. Um, what I was interested in, in terms of us having a story about that, is that it gives us some visuals as well. So, with this um, piece, it's called Moth's Wings Flutters. And what I'm interested in is both the sonic quality of the fluttering of the wings, but also the idea visually of not actually, um, and we can chat later about that, but um, not just what I was getting from the what looked to me like graphic notation of the science and the scientific diagrams and grids and graphs, but also the idea of the moth changing and the many generations of moths and all that multitude of wings changing from white to black and the density of notes. Um, that's how it translates for us as musicians, density of notes, much to the cursing of my colleagues. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, and so, yes, so this is a theme, if you like, that runs through the, the, the music composition that I've written, which is the story of the moths as well. So we began at the beginning with Moth Returns to Mountain Ash, which is very much an artistic leap. Um, and here is, if you like, the beginning of that story for me uh, the idea of these moths changing and the, and the density of those wings, if you like, and the change. Perhaps depressingly, it's called In the Valley of the Ruined. Um, It was originally written from a different work, um, but it seemed at, because again, the the narrative in the artist takes hold and questions arrive that aren't necessarily scientific, which is, um, well, if all these moths have changed colours or changed into black, what about the last remaining? What about the one that's left behind that doesn't have family left? That is how we end our first set. (laughs) and um, Thank you. Thank you for coming on the journey and being a moth as well. (laughs) Hope it wasn't too daunting. It's lovely. um, Artistic terms, it kind of makes the room shimmer and that we're all in it together, which is really lovely. We're now going to unpack some
3: of the things that happened in the first set (laughs) but also some of, and, and kind of allude to some of the things that we played in the second set as well. So I might actually start with you, Alyssa, in terms of, you alluded to Dr Anna Syme (laughs) when you were talking before, do you want to just take us through some of the, why evolutionary biology in the first place, how did that come about, and also how did did you end up collaborating with a bioinformatician and a geneticist on a project?
6: like, what is the meaning of life? I pro- <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if, it, if it's the answer to that question, it's um, a dear friend that I've known forever and sitting and chatting over many years, um, comparing notes about her journey through science and mine through art and music. And getting quite excited by realising that it's not as far away from each other as we're given to believe, especially back in the day when I went through school and university, um, that we we are about testing questions um, and getting quite ex- excited about realising um, where things merge and where things um, diverge um, in terms of the, the musician-composer coming in and the evolutionary biologist-informatician coming in. Um, that's that in a nutshell. And then, of course, when you start dreaming, you start dreaming about, oh, but if we did this. Um, and of course, um, the idea of climate change or a climate emergency being so prescient. Um, and so I realised if I'm going to go into this uh, way of thinking about music and a music vocabulary in a different way, I really need to uh, bone up on science because didn't do science at all through school or uni, Um, you could probably tell. And so I was very fortunate. I secured a a residency at Culture Lab, where I first met Renee. Three-month intensive, um, where I did 101 in evolutionary biology with Anna's help, and also brought in a, a wonderful dramaturg. A dramaturg is someone who usually is in a theater context, and sits sort of at the director or devisers' ear and says, well, these are the questions you said you were looking at. This is what I'm starting to see, or have you thought about? Or, and for me, it was really important, I guess, to have some integrity with what I was exploring, so to really start to understand something of the science and the scientific processes, I would say but also not to lose, if you like, the artistic heart of what we were doing in that process. Gideon and Adam came in at the early stages. I wanted to work in a small ensemble because it was already exploding my brain and I wanted, again, to have a level of integrity about what we were testing and exploring in terms of scientific concepts, translated, adapted, inspired into new music we met during that early
3: process. And so uh, it was fascinating to see because as a geneticist by training also, Mm. I realized that actually a lot of what we learn is via visuals. So we look at DNA code and we align things and then we find mutations that way. Mm. But there's no reason why we couldn't sonically explore any of that. And actually that's a really interesting process because looking at the way you worked and, and the way that you work with audiences, sometimes people actually understand a lot better sonically than they do actually looking at a code and we're like yeah it's obvious here it is and they go i don't even know what you're seeing there whereas it's a little bit easier for them to hear so let's do a bit of 101 then andrew (laughs) Alyssa actually mentioned bottlenecks and i don't know various other things we've been talking about dna slippage and mutation and all those sorts of things so I know that I'm going to give you like a short amount of time to condense, you know, all of the sure. ways, all yeah. of the tools that <laughs> our organisms have to actually evolve when they're faced with environmental pressures. Do you want to just have a bit of a chat about some of those?
1: Yeah, well, I guess the peppered moth, which was one of the examples that you use, is a great, you know, one of the classic examples that we used to talk about how selection works out in the environment. So you have this great example of where there's variation in a population, so you have very dark forms of the moth and very light forms of the moth. And under the natural conditions where the trees were really white, the white moths were very camouflaged and didn't get eaten by birds. The black ones really stood out, so they got predated by the birds really rapidly. And then as the trees progressively became more black you had then the dark moths having that advantage where they were now becoming more camouflaged on the trees and the white ones really stood out and so they started getting eaten by the birds. And so suddenly you get this shift in the population from the black moth that wasn't an advantageous colour to be, it wasn't the the, the strongest in that environment, suddenly now growing and becoming the strongest one because of the environment changing. And then eventually when the trees shifted back to this white colour when they cleaned up the atmosphere, you have the opposite effect happening in in reverse. So then those black moths become really conspicuous again and get predated, and the white ones are the ones that become predominant in that population. And whenever these big shifts happen, when you have these huge environmental changes or something that happens very rapidly in the environment, you have this sort of selection happening where suddenly a small group of individuals in that population then might have some sort of advantage. And then what happens is the more common form that might be the majority of that population gets lost like the white form of the the peppered moth was. And so suddenly your population becomes quite small on who your fittest individuals are and you lose a lot of that diversity that was existing in that population. And when we're talking about climatic change and the way in which species can can survive through these, these tough changes, you've got to have a lot of variation in your population. You've got to have some of those around that are able to deal with some of these sort of varied conditions so that when things change very rapidly, somebody is going to have a selective advantage in that environment. And with climate change, it's one of those things that's happening so quickly that we're not sure whether this rate of mutation or this rate of change that species go through is fast enough in a lot of cases to really keep up with how rapid those things are happening. And the mutation rates, so or the way in which those species get that variation and how they evolve is really kind of set you can't really speed that process up too much. And so if you don't have that variation there or if things happen very quickly, the way that species respond is kind of at a set level. You can't really accelerate that rate of change. And so I guess that's one of the things I guess is kind of interesting with this is how far can you push it and is there always going to be somebody in that population who is able to survive and then create that, that then body for the next population to start to sprout from.
3: Great, I think this is a good time to bring Amy in, particularly when we're talking about biodiversity because a lot of our strategies around biodiversity are almost allowing, I was reading a, a philosophical paper the other day about the difference between strategies around biodiversity and bioproportionality for example, and biodiversity sometimes our strategies are wait till populations get endangered and then kind of try and do things Um, to stop that at that point. But then that's actually problematic from the perspective of enough genetic variation to see that um, population, even if we get it up to a certain level, for it to then survive any major kind of environmental shifts. Whereas proportionality looks at, you know, how many of those particular species need to survive in the environment. Some species we need more of. You know, the top predators we obviously need less of than, than than the herbivores and all that kind of stuff, you know, looking at it from a different perspective. I just wondered if you could bring in some of your um, experiences as a a threatened species um, biologist around what you're doing with particular vulnerable um, populations of um, species at the moment.
4: So I work for Zoos Victoria and we look after 27 threatened species, uh, most of them being Victorian species. I specialise in the eastern Bite bandicoot, which is a recovery effort that's spanned 31 years now. The problem with the Eastern Barred Bandicoot was over 99% of their habitat has been destroyed, but the biggest threat is foxes. So back in 1988 when the recovery efforts started, there was just 200 bandicoots left in Hamilton in southwest Victoria. So it already reduces small population. And then a rescue effort started. They took 40 animals out of that wild population, and only 23 of those bred. So all Eastern Barbed Bandicoots on the mainland today are descendants of those original 23 animals. When I got involved 14 years ago in the recovery effort, there was maybe 100 Bandicoots left in Victoria, and that was it. Now things are looking much better. We've got maybe 1,200 Bandicoots now. And just last month, we had a big project. We released 74 Eastern Bide Bandicoots onto French Island, which was a project that has taken us 12 years to do. Um, So it feels good to finally get them there on Victoria's largest fox free island. So they have gone through these bottlenecks where genetic diversity has declined, but there are Um, Project's underway. So Melbourne University, Dr. Andrew Weeks is doing a gene widening project. I won't talk too much about genetics because it's not my area. Get it wrong. (laughs) But essentially what he is doing is taking Eastern Bide Bandicoots from Tasmania, which is a different subspecies, and he's crossing those with the mainland um, form to increase their genetic diversity.
3: So I wanted to give people the opportunity in the audience to start asking questions as well. So if you want to ask a question, please feel free to just put up your hand and we will invite you into the conversation as well. Yes?
0: What you just said brings up a question straight away for me. Uh, so are you actually then changing species as well? If you're starting to take a variety, I don't know whether Tasmanians is a variety of the same species?
2: It's if, so you, if you really
0: start mixing, there's already a limited genetic, genetic pool. Yeah. Now you're starting to bring in uh, variation. So are we artificially changing varieties? Is that, is that a problem, is it not a problem? I don't it's know. It's a
4: good question and it's something that came up in discussions with the recovery team. I think I'll give my answer then I'll pass to Andrew. (laughs) The way that Dr Andrew Wicks is doing it is he's only inserting a little amount of the genetics from the Tasmanian form because we don't want to have this mixed Eastern Because then, yeah, does that affect funding that we can get? Because the Tasmanian Eastern Barred Bandicoot is more secure than mm-hmm. the Victorian. So, you know, it makes things a bit cloudy. But at the end of the day, you do what's best for the species and survival of the species. So if that means that we have to insert some Tasmanian genetics for the species to persist, at the moment we don't see any deleterious genetic Effects. There are a couple of things that we see that probably are genetically related, but there's nothing severe, so they're still breeding. and Breeding output is, as, as far as we know, is what it's always been. But it's good to have this wide and genetic pool just mm-hmm. to prevent anything in the Something future. Very similar is
1: happening with the helmet of honeyeaters as well, it's, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. it's when exactly the common, same as that. Yeah. Quite small yeah. Common variety.
0: Did Do you actually run the risk then to push the ex- nearly extinct variety? and create just more of the common Is that, you know,
1: I just wonder how that works. It, I mean, it is. So you are definitely blending those species. You're not maintaining the, you know, the, the, all of the things that were unique to those particular subspecies when you cross them together. But the benefit that you get from them bringing that variation back into their genome outweighs, I guess, what you might then lose. So if you, you run the risk of losing that entire population, because if some you know, sort of, pressure was to come through French Island and they're also closely related and it kills one of them, it's probably going to kill all of them. But if you can bring this in, you might lose a little bit of their uniqueness but also give them, bolster the population enough that they have the diversity within them then to survive through those sorts of um, different pressures that they might come up against. Talking about conservation, especially with the the helmeted Honey Eater, I think it's been a really important part of that conversation is trying to figure out where you draw the line in terms of saving the uniqueness of that species versus potentially losing them all together, but having some sort of blended one survive. You know, they've done these um, crosses between different sub-populations of uh, mountain pygmy possum, and it really helped to recover a lot of the fitness of that population. It was really looking like it was going to go extinct, and then by introducing some genetic variation from a nearby population, it kind of bolstered the reproductive potential of that population. There's a lot of tools that we have now as geneticists where we can start to Think about whether we want to go in and do these, create these sorts of hybrids to bring these populations back, or even go in and engineer in variation to try and give these, you know, populations a boost. And I guess they're all conversations we're going to have to have around what we're trying to preserve and 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 how much we want to preserve that uniqueness.
3: Yes. Um, so Andrew, you're looking at de-extinction. So there's two parts to this question. Uh, what's what's the future of de- I guess what's the future of de-extinction looking like, and also. Is it, is it kind of worth investing in de-extinction, or would it be better using that money to like protect the threatened species we already have at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I think it's uh, a really good question. So I think at the moment, you know, definitely de-extinction is going to be an extremely expensive endeavor, especially for things like the Tasmanian tiger, you know, something that I'm very passionate about. Um, but... <laughs> So, at the moment, you're definitely better off investing in preserving the marsupial populations that we have around now. I think protecting the environment and really spending the money on trying to preserve what we currently have is a far better investment than anything will ever be for de-extinction. De-extinction is always going to be fraught with what are you actually bringing back. You're never going to be able to fully 100% recapitulate an extinct animal. It's very unlikely we'll be able to figure out every single part of their genome because the DNA is broken up into such tiny little pieces that we can't always put every single bit of that genome back together again. But the the reality of the de-extinction science is we're getting so much better at creating synthetic DNA, synthesizing extremely long stretches of DNA, doing very careful edits to DNA very reproducibly, that in the future it is going to be a question that I think will be part of the conversation of do you want to bring species back that have gone extinct? Can you engineer an existing animal out there that's very closely related to that species to make it look like that extinct species and bring some of that diversity back? Do we want to use this science to engineer things in like extra diversity into their immune system genes to give them, you know, a a stronger chance of surviving in the wild? They're all things, once we can start to manipulate the DNA on that large scale, which we're really getting to, that are going to be really good questions to, to think about. So right now we're really interested in trying to capture the diversity that we see in the existing marsupial populations. Can we have ways of banking their cells and banking that biodiversity that if we start to lose those species, we can reintroduce that diversity back in from that natural population, so the existing diversity, rather than trying to have to engineer something. And we have very good ways of collecting cells and banking those cells and keeping that diversity alive, if you like, um, so that we can help then if those species run into issues, trying to bring those things back.
3: Um, I was very excited to meet a musician whose inspiration was evolution. <laughs> uh, and, and one read was a number, a few years, 10 years ago, I guess it is, in the 150th anniversary, the Tudor choristers, uh, which I was singing at the time, put on a concert um, about evolution. And there was very little. That, I mean, we found a few songs about plants and animals, but there was nothing that really took its inspiration from the whole concept of evolution itself. So, as you are saying, there's such a divide there. How do you think we can surmount it and recognise that, that really, you know, evolution's a beautiful inspiration?
6: And there are other inspirations in science as well. Is it that our education separates us too early? I'm going to answer tangentially. Um, I can only answer from my own pathway, I think. The first project I did which sort of entered into this world was a piece called Dust to Dawn Devolving where I was reading about extinct bird life and reading about extinct bird calls of which we don't have any archival recordings. And again, as an artist, that's terribly sad but it's also terribly exciting because you've got licence to then imagine what that bird call is and playing with themes like presence and absence its quite poetic, quite beautiful. So that was my first step in, was starting to analyse these descriptions of of now extinct birds and bird calls. And then I got interested in ornithology and and headed off to Anna. So why am I talking about that? Because there are many ways in. I think as artists, um, I think all of us are interested in, can I say this guys, um, uh, expressing. And so if the topic of evolution takes us there, we, we will express and we can express to a new audience. And one of the outcomes, if you like, of the residency that I did now two, three years ago, is that the Gene Tree Project is being rolled out with a large perform- youth performing arts centre called St Martin's, introducing in very broad brush strokes the themes around the Gene Tree Project, the themes around their story of the peppered moth to ages from five to eighteen. I think it's about five hundred children. I can answer in a very specific way. Last Tuesday I was out at Dandenong Primary where we work with 25 predominantly very new Australian children, um, often coming from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bosnia. Many of them struggle with so much and trying to deal with the curriculum. But when when we sit down with them with these themes um, about genetics and evolution and we hand over to them, what are your questions with this? What is your response with this? They blossom. Mm-hmm. When I translate, or perhaps adapt, um, some very basics of evolutionary science into rhythm, they take it on like that. So I'm very optimistic about how the themes of evolution can, can be um, offered to people beyond perhaps a, a, a very specific scientific frame, dare I say it. When when I see these beautiful 10, 11, 12-year-old children literally embodied with that science and asking what we call impossible questions in in quite optimistic ways. So they're not looking at it like it's the end of the world as we know it. They're looking at, well, why is it that da-da-da-da-da? I think that's a lovely way of exploring evolution. Yeah, it was a tangential answer.
0: (laughs) For Andrew, I'm no biologist, so I'm going to ask a question that's pretty dumb. But um, using the peppered moth example of variation, but I'm interested in variation and time. As an example, if they hadn't cleaned up England and and the Industrial Revolution for a lot longer, two, three hundred years, and then they cleaned it up. Given the length of time, would the peppered moth be able to have that variation and change back? Or is there so much time that that wouldn't have been able? In other words, the time was a. Would enable that variation to occur,
1: but maybe not, I don't know. Yeah, no, there's definitely examples where if you have a prolonged pressure that's happening in a population and you lose that, that variation that you had originally in your broader population, that you may not be able to recover those things. So it's definitely, I mean, that's what happens in a bottleneck, is that basically you have such a strong selective pressure that only a very few individuals survive that have a particular, you know, colour or size or shape or something that gives them that advantage and then you lose all that other variation in the population, and so suddenly you become a much more vulnerable population, much like the Eastern Bar Bandicoot. So when you are descended from such a small number of individuals, you know, they might be fine for, you know, a, a millennia, but it depends on what environmental consequences they face and whether they have the variation then in their genome to be able to survive that, that sort of challenge. So
0: if we got climate change happening so quickly, and if we don't do anything for a long time, then the longer we take, because we're taking a bloody long time to address <laughs> it. No, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and the longer, the more of that bottleneck problem we're having. It's definitely
1: the more diversity that you lose, and that's when we have to think, you know, do we step in and try and help these populations get across this rapid change? Are there well, ways well, well, that we can help there there to In that. a micro
0: sense, but in a macro sense, that doesn't help, does yeah. it?
1: I mean, there's things that they're doing, I mean, these, you know, at the University of Melbourne they cross different coral species and they've shown that when you create these hybrid corals, because of the diversity they have in their genome, they're suddenly able to tolerate much warmer waters and so they're now trying to repopulate dead regions of the reef with these hybrid corals. So there's ways that we can manipulate, again, but you're losing those species by hybridising them together and creating something else, but then at least maybe it creates the habitats for the fish and everything else. If we can get those corals back in. So, yeah, in the tourists. So, you can create all, you know, you can try and help speed that process up, but you do, that comes at a cost. It always comes at a cost. And if you have prolonged pressures, you definitely lose diversity. Yeah.
3: To wrap up this panel, I thought I might end with Amy around, because um, we've sort of touched, Alyssa's touched on this already, around the sort of hope angle. Because I know that zoos, Victoria, obviously you've, you've spoken about a great project you're involved in, mm-hmm. but there's actually a couple of really fantastic projects going on at the moment around other species uh, and supporting them through um, what is going to be a changing climate and, and potentially food scarcity, etc. Do you want to just um, yeah. touch on some of those and also from the perspective of how people in this audience might like to get involved with some of the zoos projects? Many of you may not know, but you can actually become a citizen scientist and actually be part of some of the zoo's programs and, yeah, and help yeah, out.
4: You can. So in terms of hope, the Eastern Barber Wurrent story is the story of hope. It's set to become Victoria's first mammal that we remove from the threatened species list because of all the work that's underway at the moment. Um, But we do, we work with 26 other species. So one of them at the moment, Andrew already mentioned, the mountain pygmy possum. So this is Australia's only hibernating marsupial. It's currently waking up, or it did a few weeks ago, and when they wake up, they only have one food source, really, and that's the bogong moth. But the last few years, the moths haven't been arriving. And we're not sure why that is. It could be climate-related or it could be they're getting distracted by lights. So we do have a campaign at the moment. It's turn your lights off. So any unnecessary outdoor lights, turn them off so that the moths can actually find their way to, to where the possums are. And we do have a citizen science project moth tracker. So if you do see a Bogong moth, you can actually record that sighting into Moth Tracker so we can get a sense of where these moths are actually going. Are they going to the alpine regions where they're meant to be going or are they ending up somewhere else? And then other campaigns we have at the moment, um, so we've got safe cat, safe wildlife, so this is all about keeping your cat indoors. So a healthy cat, healthy happy cat is an indoor cat because outside there's a lot of pressures yeah they could get hit by a car, they could get attacked by a dog or a fox or whatever and in the process of keeping your cat inside and we know that indoor cats have a much longer lifespan than outdoor cats we're also protecting wildlife as well so domestic cats are responsible for the loss of species, they are preying on native species whether we like to believe that or not, Um, it is happening every day and then we have uh, blow bubbles not balloons so we know that plastic pollution is a huge huge issue and so it's fun to have a helium balloon but once we let go of them where do they go and they often end up in the oceans and birds are feeding on those balloons thinking that they're fish And what's really upsetting is on Lord Howe Island, so these seabirds are actually collecting these balloons and feeding it to their chicks. So they have a project over there where they actually pump the stomachs of these chicks so that they can get rid of all the balloons and and then they can actually try and grow. So, you know, this is a man-made issue, so we've got a big campaign about blowing bubbles, moving away from those single-use plastics.
3: Fantastic. We might wrap up the panel... Uh, now and then, heading to the second set. Please thank Alyssa, Andrew, and Amy.
6: So, so in this um, second set, I'm going to um, leap into some of the, I guess, more specific but basic principles of the evolutionary science 101. I've been inspired by, and that the music has been inspired by. But without notice, I might throw to Andrew to give simple explanations rather than me <laughs> trying in front of you. Um, the basic overall is, um, of course, you know, because I had to crack into it. I was looking at um, DNA and um, how that, how you create cells. From from my perspective, okay, that's at the heart of this bigger picture that I'm more comfortable swimming in. My way in, again, because I'm not a scientist, was looking at those scientific visuals of the graphs and the diagrams and thinking, my goodness, they are so close to graphic notation. And actually, in the residency, we were actually looking at some of the, I guess, iconic scores that came out of this movement called graphic notation, where people write their scores. Um, not with, um, in music notation, but you know, in graphs and grids. And sometimes putting you know, a John Cage version of that next to an actual scientific um, graph or grid and going, can you, can you see the difference? Sometimes not so much, yeah. um, which I think is quite exciting because it means we're closer than we think. What I picked up pretty quickly was with the DNA in the four nodes, um, and then the replication, if you like, of the DNA. See, I'm already using the words probably incorrectly. Um, into groupings of three, and how things seem to be same, same, and then a bit different, and same, same, and a bit different. So, in a nutshell, musically, I was interested in those as themes patterns of fours and threes, tones, and how a traditional instrument, much like a genetic tree. A traditional instrument and a more contemporary instrument are same, same but different tonally. So they're the things that I was kind of playing with at the heart of the work. Um, And I was looking at things like replication slippage, but I'm not going to explain what that is. I'll let Andrew explain (laughs) what replication (laughs) slippage
1: is. (laughs) No, I mean, they're really interesting concepts and I can see how they kind of relate between the DNA and the music. So the the patterns of four would be the four bases that you have in DNA, right? So it's made up of four different letters, if you like, that build the DNA code. And then every bit of our genome that gets then translated into a protein is made up in little groups of three letters. So there's, yeah, you have this repeat of three that goes over and each combination of three letters gives you a different part of a protein when it's building the, the proteins together. And then We have this concept of replication slippage, which happens quite often. It's a great way of actually getting more variation into our genome. Increasing the rate of mutation is by having repeats of the same structure over and over again. And then when we're replicating the DNA strand, it doesn't always do that really well. It gets a bit confused because everything looks the same. And quite often it will slip through a region and you end up with an extra bit of a protein or you lose a little bit of a protein. So it's a way of increasing that variation that you have then, which helps you then survive adversity. Um, by adding these sorts of repeat structures, I guess, in the in the DNA, that helps you get through that. Yeah.
6: So this is a musical version. <laughs> 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 poor poor fellow, you're going to get
1: co-opted
6: <laughs> now. <isn't it? laughs> this is replication slippage. At uh, this version of mm-hmm. replication. <laughs> <laughs> This piece is called for into 3, and ah, I think it's fairly self-explanatory after what I just said. Um, what I was also interested in this was the concept of same, same, different, which again i uh, picked up like a little from, from the science. evening. We'll we'll finish off with just uh, two pieces here. Um, This one is called The Other Moth, (laughs) Um, Mutant Rhythms of Survival. Um, And I really am taking licence uh, with this one. Um, Well away from science. (laughs) (laughs) And it quotes a dear colleague's composition as well. He's hiding in the audience. Um, Claire Shannon, who's hiding at the back <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, what, what I was interested in was variation in this piece, and um, uh, Claire's kindly allowed me to quote something of hers in it.
3: Please thank the Gene Tree Project, but we've <laughs> thanked them extensively. Alyssa, Elliot, Tamara, Gideon, and Adam, um, and our pl- panelists for this evening, Andrew and Amy. we <clears throat> really just scratched the surface on science and music and the synergies there, as well as the ability for species to evolve in the face of increasing environmental pressures. Um, in our time, but I hope, hopefully, this event has actually inspired people to go and read some more, but also to attend more of Alyssa's gigs. So, if you've got any coming up, usually she plays
6: at St. Paul's Cathedral
3: quite oh, yes. regularly. Actually,
6: Gideon and I are playing Fantastic.
5: Fantastic. Yes. the fourth of yes. Yes. the day. <laughs> I think that's the date for <laughs> Website
6: <laughs> to check out. Uh, yes. Um, oh, well, there's the Facebook, which is States yes. of Play. Great. Not. Is, no, I hide States of Play. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in getting on a mailing list, um, I'll have a scrap of paper. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I have to write your email address. Great. Popular. And you. if you're interested in becoming
3: a citizen scientist, which we all love here. Zoos Victoria has some great projects, so head on over to uh, the zoo's website and you'll be able to jump on that and look out for those bogon moths um, in the moth tracker. And thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight and have a, a wonderful evening. We hope to see you back at the Royal Society of Victoria very soon.
5: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in NARM, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.